Turn with me to Matthew 13. We are looking, we have been looking at verses 53 to 58. The uh, story of Jesus' return to Nazareth. And uh, uh, we, he had been there once before, and they tried to kill him. And uh, now he comes back a year later. And uh, he was teaching there in their synagogue once again. And he had very effective teaching because as we discussed last week, it was characterized by four things. He was authoritative, he had knowledge, he had grace in his speech, and his teaching was unique. And the power that he had when he taught in Nazareth was the same thing he had anywhere else he taught. Uh, the same power of a tremendous conviction came through that authoritative speaking. And with that great wealth of knowledge, when he opened his mouth, the truth of God came flooding out. And so as he taught, what was the response of the people in Nazareth to Jesus? Well, they were astonished. Uh, they were astounded. They were amazed. But it didn't change their hearts. In fact, verse 58 says he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Uh, his wisdom and marvelous powers didn't lead to anything. It just proves the point. You can be amazed at Jesus. You can be astounded at Jesus, astonished at Jesus. But it doesn't mean anything if your heart is filled with unbelief. And unbelief is a choice. It's an act of the will. It's something you determine to do. You decide you will not believe. Unbelief is the hard ground, the stony ground. Uh, so the Nazarenes were characterized by hard unbelief. Theirs were hearts that said, it doesn't matter what the evidence is, we don't and won't believe. And so this second encounter by Jesus with his former neighbors in Nazareth, we said, teaches us four things about, uh, four truths about unbelief. And uh, it also for the folks today, not just the Nazarenes, but also for us today, explains how people can hear the gospel clearly explain, sit in church every Sunday, and yet still not believe. And we saw, first of all, last time, verse 54, that the unbelief blurs the obvious. He came to his own hometown, began teaching them in their synagogue, so they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? We said, That's a dumb question. Um, where do you think supernatural miracles come from? Where, where do you think divine wisdom comes from? But it's the nature of unbelief to make the obvious to make the choice to reject and blur out what is obvious. Uh, and that's what hard soil unbelievers do. They look at Jesus' miracles, they listen to his words, and then say, well, how did he become such an incredible teacher? Uh, where did he get this supernatural power? And the entire time they're denying the obvious. Uh, he did miracles all over the place in Galilee. And as we said last night, it may have been that some of their own family members had experienced a healing by Jesus. But they, you know, they knew that all over Galilee, lame people were walking, blind were seeing, deaf were hearing, and they weren't being quiet about it. They were talking everywhere. And so there was no question about what he was doing. And they didn't deny his teaching or his miracles. Uh, they knew that wisdom comes from God. They knew that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And yet they asked the question, where did this man get his wisdom? Uh, it's the, the blurred stupidity of unbelief. 
so as I said last week, if a person says, you know, I need more evidence, I need more proof, uh, that's not the issue. These people had all the evidence they had needed. Uh, they just wouldn't make the connection. It wasn't an issue of a lack of evidence. It was a love of evil. So when you witness to people and they keep asking you and asking you and asking you for more proof, in the vast majority of cases, that's not the issue. It's not a lack of evidence. It's a love of evil. And the problem in Nazareth was they loved their sin. They didn't want Christ at all. Uh, so the first truth, unbelief blurs the obvious. The second truth we read, unbelief builds up the irrelevant. Uh, we didn't finish this one, but let's, let's review it. It says, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? If you've ever had an occasion to witness to someone who's resistant and unbelieving, after they have blurred out what is patently obvious in the presentation of the gospel message and willfully refuse to see what's clear, they will inevitably attach themselves to something that is totally irrelevant and press that to divert you from the real issue. Because invariably unbelief diverts itself off. It, it settles in, it's settled on self-justification and so it moves to that which is irrelevant. Uh, the person who doesn't believe any of it wants to divert you from that which is the real issue at hand and get you into all kinds of other stuff. And they do that to avoid the issue and to justify why they don't believe it. These Jews in Nazareth were the same way. They were the ultimate kind of egotist, believing that they had already attained the, to the kingdom of God through their heritage and their legalism. Uh, they weren't willing to back up and confess their sinfulness and accept Jesus Christ. They were also totally blown away by the fact that anyone from their town could have risen to such power and authority. They wouldn't accept that someone from their community could possibly be a great spiritual leader, especially one with no formal training and no recognition by the accepted religious hierarchy. And so they come up with this, all of this totally irrelevant stuff in verses 55 and 56. And I say, is not this the carpenter's son? Now, there's nothing more irrelevant than that. What does that have to do with the truth of what he said? Uh, the fact that his father had been their local carpenter had nothing to do with it. Uh, and then they said, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? James was the one who later became the head of the Jerusalem church and presided at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. Um, Joseph was obviously named for his father. Simon should not be confused with Peter. He's not the same one. And Judas was not, should not be confused with either one of the two Judases who were a part of the apostles. Uh, verse 56, and his sisters, are they not all with us? In other words, what they're saying is, they're saying, I mean, this is just Jesus. Uh, he's, he's just the son of the carpenter. Uh, and Mark's account tells us, they said, is this man not the carpenter? Uh, Jesus had followed in Joseph's footsteps and become the local carpenter. Most theologians believe Joseph died sometime during Jesus' young adulthood, and Jesus then took over as the village carpenter. Uh, the, the word for carpenter here, you might find this interesting, the word for carpenter <clears throat> 
was used to refer to anyone who worked in any kind of building trade, uh, whether uh, working with wood or stone. Uh, some believe it, it could indicate Joseph was a mason because homes were built out of brick. Uh, if he was a home builder, he would have built out of brick and then he would have made door frames and window frames and other things like that out of wood and he would have worked with both hard materials. Uh, it may have been that he was a carpenter who made uh, yokes and plows and other wood implements uh, for farming and reaping. He may have chiseled mangers and feed troughs out of rock for the people that owned livestock. When I was in Israel, we were shown a type of manger that was common during that time. They were chiseled out of a large rock. Uh, the standard wooden manger that we see on Christmas cards today was not normally used during the time of Christ. That is a northern European style manger from hundreds of years later. Uh, so Jesus would have worked with both wood and stone. Uh, he was a common laborer. It's wonderful how God dignified common labor by bringing the Messiah into such a family and then having him work in that profession for all of his adult life up until he was 30 years old. Uh, there's nothing at all shameful or less important about working in a profession as a common laborer, uh, whether it's as a skilled laborer, such as a carpenter, a brick mason, an electrician, a plumber, or the like, uh, or even if you're the laborer digging the ditches for the plumber, or hanging off the back of the garbage truck. Um, God honors the work of the common man, and he proves such by coming to earth and working as a carpenter in a very rural culture. Uh, so they're saying, look, this guy can't be anybody special. We know his family. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Good. Fortunately for him, right? He, yeah, but that's that's completely irrelevant. Uh, what does it have to do with this message? How does it, in any way, shape, or form, impact the fact that he did miracles? Uh, how can you use that to explain away the fact that he raised the dead? Uh, it's irrelevant. It's not the issue, but it's so typical of unbelief. Uh, it will find something that doesn't matter and attach itself to that and make that the issue and divert you. Uh, they want to get into a discussion about whether or not what they're doing here is they want to get into a discussion whether he's got the family credentials. Um, how silly. What a betrayal. And not only does he not have the right kind of family, but he doesn't even have the right kind of trade. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yes, they, they were all praying. Every young mother prayed that her baby would be the Messiah. And yet uh, when he came, he didn't have the credentials. Yeah. And uh, he, he's just a carpenter. He's a common person. And his brothers and sisters were just his brothers and sisters. They're saying, we know them. This can't be anyone special. You know, as believers, it's hard for us to understand how they could simply ignore this mass of miracles and his tremendous teaching and get stuck on the issue of his family heritage. But folks, that's the character of unbelief. Uh, in John 7:15, the same approach is used again uh, 
in Jerusalem. He arrives there and verse 14 tells us that he went into the temple and began to teach just like he had done at Nazareth. And he got the same reaction. Verse 15 says the Jews then were marveling just like the Nazarenes had done in Nazareth. And here's what they say about him. How has this man become learned not having been educated? Uh, they're obviously saying this guy can't be who he obviously seems to be because he hasn't been to the right rabbinical school. Uh, he doesn't have his degree. You see, they, all, they have all this false criteria. So they ignore his words, they ignore his works, and they disqualify him because of a lack of credentials. Uh, you know, they did the same thing to the apostles in Acts 4. Uh, Peter and John healed a man, and then they proclaimed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So they perform a miracle and then explain that it was by the power of Jesus Christ and give them the gospel. What happens? Verse 13. They, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and comprehended that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were marveling. They said the same thing they said about Jesus. How can these hayseeds from up in the backwoods of Galilee know and do all of this? That wasn't the issue. The fact was they did. And so rather than listen to their message, they divert to that which is totally extraneous to the matter. Just a note here. The question, is not his mother called Mary? indicates that they perceived Mary as an ordinary person. Certainly not, certainly far less than, than how the Roman Catholic Church proclaims her to be the queen of heaven. Uh, she was just a very common and ordinary woman. Uh, and notice that it even names his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Once again, here's where Roman Catholic doctrine goes off the rails. Uh, they teach that Mary never had any other children. Uh, they call it perpetual vir virginity. Uh, and that goes directly against the obvious indication of the this text. They try to explain it away by saying that these people were using the word brothers here in a religious sense, like we uh, refer to ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, that's, here's why that can't be true. Remember who these guys... These guys are the enemies of Jesus. They're trying to debunk him, to discredit him, and they're trying to do it by showing that he comes from a common family. That's the intent of their criticism. Mary did have children. That's why Luke 2.7 tells us very explicitly that Jesus was her firstborn. The implication of that is that there are others that followed, and here they're even named. Uh, you were going to say something, Frank? Yeah, I, used to, I, I talked to a Catholic, uh, he called himself a Catholic deacon, whatever that means. And I, I, I said that to him. You know, well, what about this? And, and you, know, you can't say that it's, you know, I used the same argument. He said, oh, no, no. What that's referring to is that 
it's very clear in scripture that as long as you're attached to the family somehow, so these were his uh, cousins. Cousins, eh? Yeah. yeah. So that's how they respond to that argument. And yeah. now it goes beyond that. That's cousins. Yeah, they've changed the word to cousins. <laughs> so, yeah. Interesting. Well, they're named here. We met them. They're, they're all, we met them. If you go back and look at Matthew 12, 46 and 47, they were mentioned there. Uh, they're indicated in John 2, 12, uh, John 7, 5 and Acts 1, 14. Uh, and it also says that Jesus had sisters, plural. Notice that that's at least two. So Mary had if think about this, ladies, Mary had at least seven children. There was Jesus and four brothers, that's five boys, and at least two sisters, uh, perhaps more. So she was a very ordinary woman, uh, albeit a woman of great godliness, but not supernatural. Uh, his brothers and sisters were very ordinary people. And so the question is, with you know, they're asking us, with this kind of a family, where did this man get all of these things? Uh, I mean, he doesn't have the heredity to pull this off. He doesn't have the training. He doesn't have the education. He's not from the elite. Now that tells us something very interesting. When we think about the period of time from the Lord's birth to his ministry, that 30-year period there, most Bible teachers think that the only insight we get into the whole period is the story we read in Luke 2 where Jesus was 12 and Joseph and Mary took him with them to the temple in Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And he went into the temple. You remember the story. He was asking questions of the teachers of the law there in the temple and how Mary and Joseph had to go back and get him. And Luke 2.52 says, Jesus was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And many people believe that that's the only insight we get into that gap of time between his birth and the start of his ministry 30 years later. But I believe our passage here in Matthew 13 also gives us insight into that period, and we haven't always seen it this way. Uh, you see, there, there are all kinds of very fanciful, wishful stories about the time of Jesus' childhood. They are nothing more than myths. Uh, they're found in some of the apocryphal writings, such as the Gospel of Thomas and other such false gospels that were written between the 2nd and 7th centuries A.D. Uh, in them, they claim that Jesus was manifesting his deity in wonderful ways during his childhood. They tell us that when he was a little boy, he did things such as give life to little clay images of various animals and birds. Other stories tell of him healing a man's foot of healing his brother James after he was bitten by a viper, of raising his best childhood friend, a boy named Zeno, uh, from the dead after he fell off of a housetop, uh, and several other such healings. One even claims that his father, Joseph, was commissioned to make a bed from two beams of wood that were of unequal length, and so Jesus stretched the shorter beam so that it would match the length of the longer beam. Uh, now, sadly, many of the stories also have Jesus behaving like an ornery, spoiled, vengeful brat, dealing out retribution on other children who taunted him, causing their illness and even their death. Um, and those kinds of stories are found all through the apocryphal books, and they have Jesus going through those 30 years, doing all kinds of various miracles, whether good or bad. This text directly counters that. 
You see, the problem the people in Nazareth have is that they cannot relate the Jesus they're seeing now to the Jesus that they knew for all of those prior years, which indicates there was nothing about him that went beyond that which was ordinarily human uh, in the sense of any overt acts of deity. Uh, oh, yes, he was perfect. Oh, yes, he was sinless. But there were no indications that he demonstrated divine power during that time. I believe that when Jesus became a man, as it tells us in Philippians 2.7, he humbled himself. He took on himself the form of a slave by being made in the likeness of an ordinary human male. I believe that in every sense, those years were lived in the confines of his humanness. Sinless, yes, but not without any manifestation of divine power. Uh, that's why they didn't make the connection. So this passage gives us insight into the childhood of Jesus. It was nothing out of the ordinary other than, you know, that Jesus kid is a really good kid. You know, he treats all the other kids well, and he always obeys his parents. So, but now they say, this is the carpenter's son. This is the one we knew was a carpenter. This is the son of Mary, the brother of these guys and these women. He's not anybody special. And that rises out of the fact that there were no indications during that period of, the, of his life, those 30 years of the manifestation of his deity. Their confusion initially was based on his commonness. Yes? When he was told, oh, we know who our father is, did the Muslims think he was illegitimate? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Illegitimate. Oh, yeah. And so they emphasize the commonness of his life as if that's the issue. And they say at the end of verse 56, where then did this man get all these things? They asked the right question, but they wouldn't believe the right answer. They were unbelieving despite asking the right question. The one thing they can't believe is that he's from God because... You see, he's just too common. And because they can't live with the fact that one of their own should be so anointed above his family and fellow townspeople. You know, it's hard for people to handle that. So unbelief blurs the obvious. And secondly, unbelief builds up the irrelevant. Third thing that unbelief does. Unbelief blinds to the truth. Unbelief blinds to the truth. Look at verse 57. And they were taking offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Now we see how blind they are. The words taking offense there are from a verb meaning to cause to stumble. Uh, metaphorically, uh, it came to mean to cause someone to be offended. Uh, We've seen this word before. It's scandalizo, from which we get our word scandalize. Uh, one excellent Greek lexicon expressed it this way, that it means to excite feelings of repugnance. I thought that was very good. They stumbled over Jesus. They couldn't handle the idea of him being the Messiah. They were offended at him. His words, his claims, his actions stirred up feelings of repugnance in them towards him. They were offended by his commonness. They were offended by the fact that he came from their town. 
They were offended by what he taught because he unmasked their hypocrisy and spoke to them about what it took to enter the kingdom. He must have talked to them of their sinfulness and the need to repent, and the whole thing offended them. It scandalized them. They were not neutral. They were adamantly antagonistic and bitter towards him. And just as Isaiah had said that Jesus reiterated back in verse 15, for the heart of this people has become dull and with their ears they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. They were willfully blind and deaf. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 to 28. He says, Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews and he's foolishness to the Gentiles. But we who are called and believe in him see him as the power of God and the wisdom of God. To us, his words and his works reveal him to be God. To them, his words and works cause them to stumble. Why? Because they wouldn't believe. Why wouldn't they believe? Because they're not ready to have their sin revealed. So when you, press, when you present the gospel to someone, that's the bottom line. It isn't more proof that people need. It's a willingness to abandon their sinfulness. And that demands that plowing of the hard soil, which is the preparation work of the Spirit of God. And sometimes God will use us as tools to help in that plowing process. But until that is done and they're willing to break with their sinfulness, there can be no believing. Uh, there can be no seeing. There can be no understanding. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, A natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. When, when the Apostle Paul talks about why God has temporarily set Israel aside, he says in Romans 11.20, they were broken off for their unbelief. That's a refusal to believe. Not because the facts aren't there, but because there's not a willingness to deal with sin. So our Lord is giving us a beautiful illustration and to the disciples as well, that when you go out into the world in this era of the kingdom, in this mystery form, you're going to hit unbelief. And this is how you can recognize it. Only those who believe will understand. In John 8, 31, 32, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, then you are truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It's only those who abide in his word who will understand. The heart has to be open. In Acts 16, 14, it describes Lydia as a woman whose heart the Lord opened to pay attention to the things spoken by Paul. Her heart was open and the gospel message came. That's the pattern. Going back to our text then here in, verse, in Matthew 13, at the end of verse 57, Jesus responds with a statement that he used on several occasions. It says, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. That was a proverb. He was saying in a sense, I'm fulfilling a proverb. You know, all experts are guys from out of town, right? I, I remember that during my career, we always said an expert was someone who was from more than 50 miles away who carried a briefcase. Uh, Edwin Meese, the uh, attorney general under Ronald Reagan, defined an expert as somebody who's more than 50 miles from home, has no responsibility for implementing the advice he gives, and shows slides 
<laughs> and that's basically what these Nazarenes were saying about Jesus. They're saying no one can be an expert from our town. This is just Jesus. He's no one special. And he's saying, you fulfill that proverb because you rejected me. And what's even more tragic, John 7, 5 says, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Even in his own house, they didn't believe in him. That changed after his resurrection. But it again demonstrates that there was a tremendous amount of obscurity in those years between his birth and the initiation of his ministry. I mean, you would think in 30 years, if he had ever done any sort of miracles, his family would know. His brothers didn't even believe. That also demonstrates to me the typical human envy and jealousy, even within his own family. You can imagine how it must have been to live 30 years with a brother who was perfect and never sinned a sin. <laughs> I mean, that would get to you, constantly being the perfect standard by which you saw your own imperfection. Uh, when you're misbehaving or disobeying, you know, here's your mom or dad saying, why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> so there was no honor in his own hometown. He's just a nobody. And there was no honor in his own house. He was just the older brother. And there was a lot of jealousy and envy. Oh, how their unbelief blinded them. Way back in Deuteronomy 32.20, Yahweh described the Jews this way to Moses. They are a perverse generation, sons in whom there is no faithfulness. God had brought them out of Egypt with mighty miracles and then given Moses his message for the Jews in the form of the law, but they were faithless toward him, even though he remained faithful to them. And it was the same in Jesus' day. They refused to believe his message or his miracles, and yet he was the one who mournfully proclaimed, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way the, a hen gathers her chicks under his wings, and you did not want it. So unbelief blurs the obvious. It builds up the irrelevant. It blinds to the truth. Fourth thing unbelief does, it, it blocks the supernatural. It blocks the supernatural. Verse 58, and he did not do many miracles there. Why? Because of their unbelief. Now listen up, because it sounds antithetical to an understanding of God's sovereignty and omnipotence to say that unbelief stops God from doing miracles. In Mark's account of this event, he says he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Uh, so unbelief limits or stops God from doing miracles. That sounds so strange. Let me see if I can explain this verse to you. Jesus Christ performed many mighty works. Many of them were done in response to a person's faith, but many of Jesus' miracles were done where there was absolutely no faith at all. Uh, for example, when he raised the dead, there was obviously no faith on the part of the dead person. Uh, and even when he raised Lazarus and the widow's dead son who was on his way to the graveyard, there was no faith on the part of the family or friends. Uh, and when he cast demons out of the gathering demoniacs, there was certainly no faith on the part of the demons that possessed those men. Uh, so there were times when he acted in response to faith, but there were other times where he acted where there was absolutely no faith. 
but he acted sovereignly with or without faith in terms of his healings and his dealing with people. I think of the story that we find in Luke 17 where the ten lepers met Jesus. And Jesus healed how many of them? All ten. All ten. And he told them, now go show yourself to the priest so they can see that you're clean. And that way you can, come, you can rejoin society. So Jesus healed all ten of them and sent them off to see the priest. How many of them came back and worshipped him? One. 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 He, and you remember this? He was a Samaritan. Jesus says, where are the other nine? Only this one foreigner has come back to glorify me. And then he says, your faith has saved you. Now, what did he mean? Well, he didn't mean your faith is what cleansed you of your leprosy because he had already healed all 10 of them. What he meant was I healed them physically by my sovereign choice. Their unbelief ended the process at that point. But you came back and you received not only physical healing, but your faith has saved you. Wholeness is not just physical, it's physical and spiritual. And that man received the saving of his soul. So while God will heal with faith or without faith by his sovereign choice, when it comes to the unbelief of the heart, that will stop the divine and supernatural intervention. So then while faith is not necessary for miracles, in the gospel, unbelief that is unwilling and hard and overt will always stop miracles. He may heal someone who is neutral or someone who's somewhat open or the man who says, I believe, help my unbelief, where there's a mixture there. But where there is hard-hearted unbelief, that blocks the supernatural. You see, it goes right back to Matthew 7, 6. Do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet. In Matthew 12, 38, the Jews came and said, we want a sign. Do a miracle. Do a special miracle to prove your claims. And Jesus looks at him and says, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it. And so here in Nazareth, we have an example of that. You find a person who's willfully hard-hearted and unbelieving, and they run around and they want to demand miracles, and God is not willing to give them any because that's not the issue at all. The issue is their sinfulness. Unbelief blocks the supernatural. It refuses to believe in miracles or that there is a supernatural illustration and supernatural explanation for miracles. I want to illustrate that by looking back at what is perhaps my personal favorite miracle recorded in Scripture. It is a story found in John 9 of the man who was born blind. So let's turn over there for a few minutes before our time runs out. I absolutely love this guy, and I'm looking forward to meeting him in heaven. Let's see what happened. John 9.1. As he, that's Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? The disciples are holding on to the tradition common in Jewish thinking which said that the sins of the parents resulted in disabilities for their children. And so they asked, Lord, was it his fault? Did he sin and get punished? Or did his parents sin and he got punished for their sin? And Jesus says in verse 3, Neither this man 
nor his parents sinned, but this was so that the works of God might be manifested in him. In other words, it's neither him nor his parents who's to blame. He's blind for the glory of God. It's no sin issue at all. He's blind for today that he may be given his sight and God may be glorified. He was created for a miracle. He was made blind for a miracle. Imagine that. God ordained that this man be born blind for the sole reason that Jesus would come along one day and heal him, restore his sight, and God would be glorified in that. In verse 21, his parents state that he is of age, which in the Jewish culture was at least 13 years of age. But I would imagine this man was probably in his 20s. Both of his parents were still alive, and he had been sitting as a beggar outside the temple for so long that everyone was familiar with him. But regardless, just think, God ordained that this man be born blind and never see light until Jesus opened his eyes. There's a definite parallel there to the unbeliever who's in spiritual darkness, never seeing the light of the truth until the Holy Spirit acts to open their eyes so they can see the light of the gospel. And then verse 6, when he had said this, he spat on the ground, made clay out of, of the saliva, rubbed the clay on his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Notice it doesn't say a thing about the faith of the man. Jesus just told him to go wash. He had never seen anything in his whole life. Verse 8, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they're saying to him, How then were your eyes open? He answered, the man who was called Jesus made clay and rubbed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went away and washed. I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I, do, I don't know. So what do they do? Well, they grab this guy and they take him to their theological experts for an investigation. And this next section becomes what one Bible teacher titled, Unbelief Investigates a Miracle. <laughs> uh, and you know what happens when unbelief investigates a miracle? Nothing, really. And we'll see that. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now I want you to notice John's important little note here in verse 14. It explains exactly why the Pharisees became so aggressive with their investigation of this miracle. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. So when the Pharisees... So the Pharisees see this as a chance to catch Jesus in a violation of their man-made rules about Sabbath keeping. They weren't interested at all in at how a man who was born blind suddenly received his sight, nor did they care about him as an individual and rejoice with him that he's now able to see. Verse 15, so the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight, and he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed and I see. Now watch this. So then some of the Pharisees are saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. They don't care about the man. They are only interested in the mechanics of how the miracle took place. Because in their thinking, to mix spittle with clay and rub it on the man's eyes on the Sabbath was considered work. And that was forbidden on the Sabbath. Say, so bring this guy in who's been blind all of his life, but now he can see. And since Jesus did it on the Sabbath, therefore Jesus cannot be of God. Great reasoning. But you see, that's what happens 
when unbelief investigates a miracle. It sets up false standards and does biased research. And it will not accept a supernatural explanation. The rest of verse 16 says, but others were saying, how can a sinful man do such signs? And there was division among them. There were a few rational people in the group who saw this as a tremendous miracle that they so much that they grasped that a sinful man couldn't do that. Verse 17, therefore they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. In other words, this man is saying God sent him. He's a representative of God. And then the Jews did not believe it of him that he was blind and received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. I mean, they're the hardest of the soils, aren't they? So they get his parents and they question them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How Then how does he now see? So his parents then answered, We know that this is our son, that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. You see, the parents recognized that the Pharisees were extremely biased in their unbelief, and this wasn't an objective investigation, so they're afraid. And John tells us that in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. They're afraid of being excommunicated from the synagogue and Jewish society. They abandoned their own son to the judgment of the Pharisees rather than stand up for him. It's hard to imagine that a parent could see their own son who was born blind, care for him, watch him grow up with all of the difficulties that blindness brings, particularly in that society, and have, see him have to become a beggar just to eke out a living. But when he gains his sight through an obvious supernatural miracle, they refuse to stand up for him at that time and agree that it was a miracle from God. But that's what happened. So verse 24 says the Pharisees came back to this man a second time. They're getting really ridiculous now. They say to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, we've already made up our conclusion that, about Jesus. Just praise God. God must have done it. I mean, it's an unbelievable, it's unbelievable unbelief. It just flies in the face of all the evidence, rejecting the facts, blurring the obvious, building up the irrelevant, blind to the truth, blocking out any possibility that Jesus has supernatural power. Verse 25, then he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, by this time, this guy is getting really irritated because they keep asking the same question. So he answers them very sarcastically. Verse 27, he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to listen again? Do you want to, all, to become his disciples too? I love that. He just sarcastically throws it back in their, their unbelief back in their face. Verse 28, and they reviled him. That word means they're yelling nasty, insulting, abusive, slanderous language at him and said, you're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. They should have known, shouldn't they? It was obvious. Now, the man's answer in verses 30 to 33 is why I want to meet him someday in heaven. It's one of the boldest, most articulate defenses of the divinity of Christ as evidenced by his miracles in all of Scripture. He's the one dominating the discussion now. He says, verse 30, well, here is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, and he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He gives them a syllogism. 
Here it is. Major premise, God does not hear sinners. Minor premise, only a man from God is heard by God so he can open blind eyes. Jesus opened blind eyes, therefore he is heard by God. If he's heard by God, he's not a sinner. So the conclusion is if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He is convinced Jesus is from God. And he mentions that since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. And in the whole Old Testament, there is never a case of healing of congenital blindness. Here's the first one. And only God can do that because only God can create a person, the eyes in a person, recreate eyes in a person who has congenital blindness. He's a better theologian than all of them put together. Yeah. <laughs> He's ready to believe, wasn't he? They weren't. Both people had the same facts. One had his heart open. The rest had their hearts closed. How did they handle this guy? Well, they hit the bottom in verse 34. They answered him, you're entirely born entirely in sins. And are you teaching us? So they put him out. They're saying, you reprobate, you worthless sinner. Are you trying to teach us? They put him out. They, they threw him out of the synagogue, meaning they excommunicated him. Story doesn't end there because verse 35 tells us Jesus heard about him, heard what they'd done to him. And after finding him, he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, You have both seen him, and he is the one who's talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. You know something? That man will spend forever in Christ's presence, and those Pharisees will be in hell forever because of their unbelief. And verse 39 says, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, are we blind too? You can almost hear them sneering at him when they say, ask it. Jesus said to him, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see your sin remains. See, the Pharisees question is structured in such a way in the Greek that it expects a negative answer. They're saying, surely you cannot be implying that we, the meticulous keepers of the law, who are the religious leaders of Israel, who are far superior to the accursed rabble who don't know the law, you can't be implying that we're blind. We're the recognized religious leaders and guides of this nation of God's chosen people. Certainly you aren't saying we're blind, are you? They're absolutely self-confident that they did not lack spiritual perception. But the reality is they're blind to spiritual truth, even though they didn't know it. It's the saddest possible situation to be blind and not know it. And they refuse to admit it. And by refusing to admit their blindness, they confirm the darkened condition of their souls and increase their hatred for the only one who could save them from Satan and their, their damning sin. Lord's answer must have surprised the Pharisees, who no doubt expected a more direct answer to their question. It's a tragic thing, isn't it, to meet people Men and women who don't understand that they don't know God, who don't understand that they're in sin, who don't understand they're spiritually blind and you can't show them sight because they don't even know they can't see. All the truth they've been exposed to and yet they won't see it. Well, I'm out of time. And I'm close to the very close to the end, so I'll just leave those for another time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, those are the marks of unbelief. It blurs the obvious, it builds up the irrelevant, it blinds to the truth, and it blocks the supernatural. So when you're sharing the gospel with a family member or friend, you just can't understand why they don't see the truth as easily as you do. 
and they keep trying to get you to chase theological bunny trails uh, rather than focusing on the key issue of their sinfulness and they keep denying the truth that, about Jesus, just remember that the God of this age has blinded their minds so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart to reveal their sin to him and draw them to Christ in repentance and faith, you can do nothing whatsoever to make them believe. Lord's the only thing you, all, the only thing you can do is pray the Lord will call them to himself and then be ready to share the truth of the gospel if and when he does. Frank, would you close us in prayer, please? Thank <clears throat> you.